This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's Monday, May 29th, Memorial Day from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We usually don't do a show on Memorial Day, but decided to do one. That was thanks to my producer, Corey Wara. Who I thank my senior producer Joel Patterson said, Good idea. Let's do a Memorial Day show. And so we bring you two segments one from the very first Memorial Day ever observed on the gist, and one about not an American soldier, but a Polish one whose contributions, though largely lost to history, were quite amazing. But I've been contemplating Memorial Day in that it is a holiday that to me is not so much anonymous, but has come to stand for something that is the opposite of what is it meant to stand for. So of course, Memorial Day really means in the lived experience of Americans, the unofficial start to summer. And Veterans Day is the unofficial end to summer. And I have to say, I confuse these two quite a bit. Are you like that? Wait, which one's Veterans Day and which one's Memorial Day? Because thematically, they're both about soldiers and honoring those who fought for the country, but Memorial Day is about honoring those who died for the country. We've gotten very far away from the original purpose of Memorial Day, and I expect that you would think, oh, so in the next sentence, I am going to mourn that, and who, of course, could object to the fact that we should think more of those who sacrifice for us. But that's not where I'm going with this. I think in some ways, it might be good that we are not so obsessed as we once were with the dead of our wars. And it's good because, well, it indicates that we don't have so many dead of our wars, not so many living, not so many people that we turn to, uncles, brothers, fathers, and say, oh yes, he lost a friend, or oh yes, I lost a sibling, or oh yes, I lost people who were part of my immediate family, who are right now walking in a parade and remember their brethren. I mean, we, we lost several in Vietnam, we have 56,000 in Vietnam, but according to demographics and lifespan, most of those people would be either dying of natural causes or dying of other causes along the way. If you look at people who were born in the late 1940s, the dead of Iraq and Afghanistan are, of course, all horrible, and we honor them and thank them, but they are few in number, and they are not drawn from a broad swath of American society. Carolyn Albanese, in the 1970s, wrote about Memorial Day, Requiem for Memorial Day, Descent in the Redeemer Nation. So her idea was to talk about earlier scholarship about how Memorial Day 
was a sacred rite and a modern cult of the dead based on sacred beliefs and enacted in dramatic rituals. It related the living to considerations which transcend their ordinary existence. The living must think about the dead. There is no way not to think about the dead because the dead could be us with the draft, with military service compelled and compelled from all quadrants of society. It is not the case anymore. A very self-selecting group volunteers for the military, which is a good thing. It is a good thing in terms of preparedness. It is a good thing in terms of fairness. But it also means that who the dead are mostly unknown to us who aren't in this select group. The more a culture moves away from being obsessed with the dead and feeling compelled to think about the dead and grapple with the dead, the dead who died for them in war, it is an indication that the society is taking a lot for granted, but also has the luxury of taking a lot for granted. That peace has descended upon the society and there is much less fear than ever was. So while we should think about and honor the dead more, the fact that we don't tells us a little bit about our selfishness, but tells us a lot about the fact that we have the luxury, the leeway, to be selfish. Our first interview is one I conducted in 2019. What a book. Jack Fairweather wrote it. It is about Vitold Pilecki, who literally volunteered to infiltrate Auschwitz. An officer in the Polish army, he didn't know exactly what he was getting into, but he knew that he was getting into something horrible, and indeed he did. The name of the book is The Volunteer, The True Story of the Resistance Hero Who Infiltrated Auschwitz. And then after that, I will come back and I will play for you the very first segment we ever did around a Memorial Day. I came back from Memorial Day in 2014, and I talked about the culling that I did with all the reading material that I had for the gist and just for who I am as a person in this world. Some of the stories, some of the publications no longer exist that I tore up and threw away or talked about what my strategy was in terms of triage about what to read and what not to read. A lot of the actual news events were like, oh yeah, I remember that happened almost 10 years ago. But listening back to it, I said, oh, I still get physical copies of the paper. I still tear them up and I still make decisions about what to read and what not to. So as much as we could say about the infiltrator of Auschwitz, enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Witold Pilecki is a Polish, was a Polish, nationalist, army officer, patriot, hero. In fact, he should be one of the greatest heroes of Poland. He did... I would say almost the unthinkable, but the unthinkable, even though I just read a 400-page book about what he did. Witold Pilecki purposefully got interred in the Auschwitz death camp, didn't know it was a death camp then, 
And he lived long enough, I think he was in there for over 900 days, to get his story out so that the world would know. In one way, it worked. The story got out. But in another horrible but also familiar way, it didn't work because the world didn't care. The story, though, is fascinating. It is called The Volunteer, One Man, An Underground Army, and the Secret Mission to Destroy Auschwitz. Jack Fairweather is the author. Jack, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Mike. How'd you find out about the existence of Pilecki? Well, I was um, been covering wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and was sitting with a, with a fellow war reporter friend, and he just come back from a, a job covering a memorial at Auschwitz concentration camp. And he'd seen a, a small exhibit talking about resistance in Auschwitz. And that was like a complete bolt from the, right. from the blue for me. Hang on a minute. There was resistance in Auschwitz. How is that even possible? It went against everything I'd ever thought about the camp. And um, that's how I came across Vitor Pilecki's name. The second source of intrigue was the fact that nothing was known about him. This guy who went to the camp, raised an underground army, reported on the Holocaust, and yet silence. And so I felt compelled to tell the story. When we think of Auschwitz, most of its notoriety was from being a death camp. And there was no resistance among Birkenau and where their crematoriums were. There was just killing. But there was a portion of the camp that was a war crime and that was a horror, which is where they housed uh, some of the Soviets and, and the Polish nationals, where the aim was to be a work camp where they worked uh, prisoners to death. And that's where Pilecki was. And it was from there that a resistance, I didn't think it was possible, but that's where his resistance took Route. That's that's exactly right. He arrived in the camp at its inception when it was a camp for Polish political prisoners, Catholics and Jews, and anyone from Poland who the Nazis wanted to get out of the way and eliminate. Palecki then witnessed these steps by which the Nazis arrived at the final solution in the in Auschwitz, and that involved some grim experiments. The first gas chamber using Zyklon B. Uh, pesticides to kill prisoners. And then eventually he learned that a new camp, Birkenau, was, was built nearby. And he faced this remarkable challenge of how do I work out what's happening in this other camp in a secret location uh, and then share that story with the world? Okay. The, the Germans invade. Poland tries to respond. When we say that does not go well, they're immediately decimated. And Pilecki joins the resistance. That, that's right. The, the war quickly turns into an occupation. And, you know, Pilecki's one of the first with a, few, a small band of other resistors to start to think about how do we fight back against the Nazis? What's that going to look like? You know, how do, how do we respond? How does the plan to get him interred into Auschwitz, how does that take hold? So a new, this new camp opens up in, in June 1940. So nine or 10 months into the occupation and people are getting sent there. Hundreds of people are getting sent there, but no one really knows what's happening. There's a few rumors that it's particularly brutal and harsh place. So the underground you know, wants to find out um, because one of their main ways of resistance in these early days is to chronicle Nazi crimes to tell the allies. So Pilecki's mission is to get into the camp and start sen sending those reports. Now, it wasn't the case that it was a crowded room and they said, who wants to volunteer for Auschwitz? Um, Paletsky had had a big disagreement with his fellow commanders, some of whom wanted to take the underground in a more sort of nationalist, sort of ethnic-centered, Christian-Polish direction. And Paletsky disagreed vehemently with that and may, had made a stand. And in actual fact, it's one of the sort of the ironies of his mission to Auschwitz is that 
it was partly to get him out of the way, get him sent, you know, get him out of Warsaw, you know, but that his commanders suggested his name. Well, he went to Auschwitz for the reason that a lot of people went to Auschwitz, which was he wasn't sufficiently ethno-nationalist enough. He wasn't sufficiently anti-Semitic. That was one of them. He wanted the entire resistance to be for all the Poles and not to not to be a pro-Catholic, militaristic, anti-Semitic movement. Exactly. He um, he was a centrist and someone who really understood that to defeat the Nazis, to break free of the Nazi thinking about different ethnic groups, yeah. they needed to come together. That was the strength of the resistance that he founded in Warsaw and then tried to recreate in Auschwitz. So do, do we know, I mean, I read the whole book, but one question I had is, do we have any sense of how long he thought it would be, how tough he thought it would be, what the likelihood of death would be, how bad the horrors around him would be? What did he think going in? Do we know? So when the Germans made made roundups in Warsaw, they would shoot people here and there. Maybe there would be a some guy would escape and they'd just pluck out 10 people and shoot them. I mean, when the Germans came banging on his the apartment door where he was staying, he had no idea, you know, exactly what was going to happen to him. And it's really a moment of extraordinary courage that he sat in that room waiting to get arrested. In some ways, that's it's the moment around which some of the book pivots, because I think it's that first act of bravery, which reveals so much of Pilecki's motivations and gives you a sense of just how he was able to take that spirit of resistance into Auschwitz. Let's talk about a couple of the escapes. Was I wasn't aware that anyone escaped from Auschwitz. How many did and what were some of the bolder ways that they did it? I, I'm so pleased you touched on that theme because for me, that's that was one of the most shocking and amazing elements of Pilecki's story, that there was this ingenuity and creativity and resourcefulness. I mean, they, he was thinking around the clock how to screw up the Nazis' operations in right. Auschwitz, and he was remarkably good at it. By and large, he tried to avoid escapes because when a prisoner escaped, all the prisoners were, made, were punished um, as, as a result. Um, but it happened that as the, when the Holocaust began in the camp two years in, he recognized that this was something that just, you know, whatever the risk, they needed to get, right. get a guy. So let me just interrupt you. Less listeners think this is escape for escape's sake. Escape was tactical. Escape was to get the word out what was going on in Auschwitz because he knew that the costs would be high. First of all, that the escape probably wouldn't happen and that the other prisoners remaining would be subject to uh, collective punishment. Exactly. I think uh, there was around about 800 escapes from Auschwitz during all, you know, all five years of its uh, existence and only 100 were successful, of which about 14 of those were arranged by Pilecki, so he was including his own. So it was an incredibly fraught and, and dangerous affair and could lead, of course, if the messenger was captured to them all being yeah. exposed. So Pilecki arranged an escape in the summer of 42, which is truly one of the most exquisite moments of resistance in the camp. Uh, these four men stole SS uniforms from a warehouse walked over to the camp garage where uh, Hus, the commandant's car, was being tuned up, sort of ordered uh, ordered the mechanics away in their guise as SS men, and then just drove straight out of the camp. Gave uh, a hail Hitler, and, and they were on their way. On their way, yeah. So yeah. Uh, And and they made it. So, um, you know, one of Pletsky's, Pletsky's courier traveled all the way to Warsaw and delivered that all-important news. So I have two questions, overarching questions. One is, 
I don't take it that he is a great hero of Poland, not that they're ashamed of him, but he hasn't been elevated to the status of a mythical figure and probably should be. Why? Because it didn't work in the end? Because for all his bravery and heroism, the camp stood still? That's that's a great question. A part of the reason why Pilecki's story is not known is because after the war, he went back to fight against the communists and they he was betrayed by some of his fellow resistors captured, put on a show trial, and executed. And then all trace of his wartime record was hidden away in the vaults, the communist vaults. And it was only in the mid-90s that the family themselves discovered the nature of Pilecki's mission when those when those archives were, were opened up. So in Poland, there's been a slow rediscovery of his story, one which with the, the rise of the current right-wing government has been lent extra momentum because they see in his story uh, of a man wronged by history uh, a narrative that connects with their own yeah. their own narrative. If this were made into a movie or let's call it a Netflix miniseries, here's the problem that I think it would have. There are so many interesting, fascinating things and you will have a truly heroic person at the center. But usually the way that narrative works is we say it's a, a life and death struggle. But this isn't really a life and death struggle. This is a death and death and death and death and death and death and life struggle. There's so much death in there. There's a just a hopelessness to it. And I do wonder if you give him the you know hero's story that he wants to have, would just the misery and the death get in the way of that in some way, if you were to turn it into a narrative tale? Well, I, I know what you mean, because I you know grew up with uh, learning about the Holocaust right. and never felt able to get my head around it or engage with it. And, I yeah. think and even the most well-known examples of literature about the Holocaust, fiction and nonfiction, always have those grace notes of Anne Frank believing that people are good. There's nothing like that here. There's just sorrow and misery. There is, but there's one other factor, which is that Pilecki, unlike a million other people who came to the camp, was there by choice. Yeah, He chose to go there. He chose to build an underground. He chose to resist the Nazis at the absolute epicenter of their evil and i think for me it offers you know such a startling perspective on the camp and what human beings are capable of despite the death around them despite that incredible pressure to you know to cease to exist that the nazis perfected in auschwitz paletsky didn't you know he kept he kept it going and i think some of the most amazing scenes in the book is when you see him sharing his mission with others and you see that hope spread around them and i think you know for me understanding that hope is possible in you know this darkest of hours i think is something that you know we can all look to in our own lives you know no matter how much we are struggling you know there is you know you've got to keep it together, not just for yourself, but for, the, for those around you. And yeah. I, I was touched by Paletsky's story. I mean, when he went to the camp, I, you know, we were the same age. We had two kids each. And I just, you know, I felt challenged to learn about how he could, how he could resist and what that could teach me. There's that really touching scene at the end of the book where he would come and watch his son uh, on like a routine Boy Scout trip where he'd come to Warsaw, but never interact with his son. Did his son have any interaction with him, you know, after he died? Because there's a question mark as to when his son even died and his daughter died. What did they think well, of their father years later? Well, amazingly, um, 
both his kids are alive. Really? And oh, there's not a question mark. It's a dash. It's a it's a big exclamation mark because wow. um, I you know they were the Andre Pelecki was the first person that I went to see upon touching down in Warsaw, and uh, I was of course quite nervous about meeting him. He was in his mid 80s at the time, and you know he hadn't known his known his father and. You know, and been told he was an enemy of the state for 50 years. And, um, you know, I was nervous about alighting on his story and telling it. Of course, Andre was incredibly receptive to uh, everything. He was delightful, engaged. Although he did warn me at the beginning, I, you know, I'm not sure what you'll find or where you should start looking. And so I remember sort of <laughs> looking him in the eye and saying, I'm going to start looking with you. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, when so little is known about Peletsky's thinking, you know, every little memory he might have of their childhood, you know, gives us some sort of insight into Pelecki's motivations. You know, the big question, of course, that I needed to answer was, how do you resist in Auschwitz? And, uh, you know, Andre, over the course of many interviews, um, helped me. In fact, he, um, I recreated the escape, uh, Pelecki's escape across um, Poland. So I left the camp at the same time as he did and trudged along the Vistula and crossed it at dawn. And, Andre, did you sleep in barns along the way in some forests. You and, did. You know, it's incredible how many of the the places still stand. And along the way, you know, you would meet families who had sheltered Paletsky, and they would say, you know, the kids now and also in the eighties would, you know, sometimes have memories. Is, is the son resentful that the government he lived under for, I guess, the majority of his life lied about his father, killed his father, ruined his legacy, lied about it? hurt the family name? Uh, Andre has reached a sort of peace with that, although his his cousin, who was actually in the room when Paletsky volunteered for the mission as a three-year-old boy and had, had memories of it, I remember asking him, so, you know, what was what was it like under communism? And he just said, it was shit. <laughs> <laughs> so that seems to with a suitable vehemence that I can't quite capture, but that sort of summed up, I think, what a lot of the families of patriots um, like Paletsky's went through. I mean, they were ostracized and denied jobs and just lived sort of half-lives and, you know, lives really nurturing the the memories of their parents, many of whom were then, you know, interned or killed by the communists. Yeah. The Volunteer, One Man, an Underground Army, and the Secret Mission to Destroy Auschwitz by Jack Fairweather. It is an amazing story about a person that you didn't know existed, and then after you read it, you can't quite believe he's he would have been all but lost to history were it not for Jack Fairweather and people like him. Thanks so much, Jack. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. My assigned reading, or actually unassigning my assigned reading. There's a stack of newspapers, or actually articles, clipped from newspapers that I've been meaning to get to. Here they are. I will be going through my stack. This happened on Memorial Day, and so I got to honor the service of the sidebars sidelined, the articles unread, the columns cold. It was my day of reckoning. Now, first of all, I like newspapers. I like the physical newspaper. Not for some indulgent, the feel of newsprint, the crinkle of paper. No, screw that. I just think in the physical form, a newspaper communicates to the reader much better than the internet does. How long is the story? What's its placement? Scan ahead a few paragraphs, eyeball just the quotes. Also, when a section ends, the news ends. Now, of course, the news never ends, but it is nice to have parameters for what constitutes that day's menu. The internet scrolls on forever until you hit some native advertising. 
Apologies to T.S. Eliot. The news ends not with a whimper nor a bang, but with a link to Lifehacker. So I read the important stuff and kept the stuff that I wish I had more time to read. And this is the I've got to get to that pile. Times, May 22nd. Balkan flooding gives way to fears of disease. Modi makes overtures to Pakistani president. Okay, but there doesn't seem much beyond that sentence. Now this, this is good. Iranian youth arrested for dancing on roofs. And it is on the right side of the page, so I could just take the column and purge the rest. Here's an ESPN the magazine article on a young Ranger fan in a wheelchair. A couple graphs in, it doesn't feel different from most articles I've read about kids who are sports fans in wheelchairs. In fact, I saw this exact kid on an HBO series about the Rangers. So guess what? It goes. I am a monster. I am a heartless media jettisoning monster. Here's a Wall Street Journal ideas section. It looks promising. There's Freakonomics on the front page, something about France inside. But the three articles on France, they just seem to be three articles because France has a tricolor flag. And here's a Q&A near the end with Mariano Rivera now. Now, I like Mariano Rivera. I paid a lot of attention to him when he did his goodbye tour of every major league stadium and his last appearance at home and his last appearance at the All-Star game. You know, does that much else need to be said about a guy who threw one type of pitch throughout his major league career? You know what? Except for the Freakonomics article, this whole section could go. And the Freakonomics article that starts on page one is continued on page two. That's it. Everything else gone. Some news does your culling for you. Like I had an entire sports section from Wednesday, May 23rd, the main story on Landon Donovan getting cut. I didn't read it then, but now I know everything that was in it. The Donovan story just found me. Goodbye. Data Purge Insight. Avoid first-day print versions of stories that you know will find you elsewhere. And here's the second half of an article about Jimmy Page. I wonder why I missed the first half. When I go back, I see on the front of the art section, there was this picture of an old lady. Oh shit, that's Jimmy Page. Anyway, it's red, now it's gone. Here's protesters in Donetsk. But there was one of these articles every day, every day in advance of the elections. And they're all filled with color. But if every article has three paragraphs on the peddler going about his business and the trees in bloom because they don't know they're juxtaposed against the time of crisis, you read all of that. You read five articles with a few graphs about life going on as normal and trees in bloom. You have just read an entire article about clueless trees in bloom. Ukrainian foliage is not that fascinating. Data Purge Insight 2. Every article must not just justify itself in its own right, but also needs to justify itself against where you could be spending your time. Like, I get this feeling when I listen to Sirius. Say I'm listening to a song on Sirius New Wave Radio. And I'm saying, oh, what if there's a better song on Pearl Jam Station, number 22? What about 80s on 8? And Pandora is even worse for the hypothetical music regret. But now, during this process... I allow the itch to inform my purge if I'm reading about income inequality, but wondering if it might be worth more of my time to read about the GOP strategy on immigration, then guess what? Income inequality, you're out. Here's an article on ARCs. Maybe they were circular. Maybe I don't care. Gone. Here's an article on the evils of outdoor cats. Gone. Heaven is for real, not just some fringe belief. Still a boring belief to me. Gone. 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 This frees me up to read about Swedish pedestrian safety. I am getting smarter by exposing myself to less information.
Then there's the book review, a special case. The book review itself is a telescoping of a great deal of knowledge into a manageable size. When you purge the book review, you are purging at least two Russian nesting dolls of knowledge. So it's hard, but most of the book review is gone as well. You know, you know who I want to thank? You know who I realize I need to thank during this process? I would like to thank newspapers who run columnists who are just out of ideas so that I can save time. Bless you, Peggy Noonan, and your predictable palaver. Krugman writing about something other than the economy? You just saved me 780 words beyond graph one. And thank you to weekend lifestyle sections. Summer houses in the Adirondacks are utilizing a different type of wood. Maybe it's the wood from obliviously blooming Dunesk trees. Gone! And here's another article on net neutrality. I'm beginning to think that I want to want to read about net neutrality more than I actually want to read about net neutrality. I know that it has to do with the flow of information over bandwidths, and I also know that that's what this project has also been about. In the end, I rid myself of about 80% of the so-called essential reading. I read about five of it right there in the moment, and I still have about 15% left to go. But it has been a cleansing and illuminating experience. Now, on to every New Yorker since May of 07. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the chief birthday officer of Peachfish Productions. Doo-doo! Happy birthday! The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oom-peru, G-peru, do-peru, and thanks for listening.